morning, everyone. Grateful to be here with you today. There's uh, two seats here, two seats here, seat here. Keely, Paul, if y'all want to sit. Eller's dad. Well, this, if you're uh, join, just joining us for the first time uh, t- this week, this class is entitled Faith Seeking Understanding, Lessons Un, in parentheses, Unlearned. Uh, we're taking the, uh, the fra- famed phrase from uh, Anselm, Archbishop of Canterbury, 11th or 12th century. I've still forgotten to look it up, which one it was. Um, and he, he would use that phrase, faith seeking understanding, as a sort of shorthand for what the task of theology is about. That we began with this sort of uh, gift of faith. We're given the gift of faith, and then we go about uh, seeking understanding. That because we have been given the gift of rationality, created in the image of God, we employ the gift of God in rationality to try to make sense of, to understand this gift, the revelation of God's will and purposes in Jesus of Nazareth, in the, in the prophets, in Moses in the prophets, in Jesus, in the scriptures, in the tradition of the church, we seek to understand these things. And then we, we pointed out, too, how um, we're particularly paying attention to the seeking part as well, faith-seeking understanding that in the, in the scriptures and in the tradition of the church, we have given credibility, we've given attention to people's experiences that you have, for example, the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, where one of the great turning points in the, in the history, some church historians would point to Acts 15 as the moment at which Christianity begins. Because in Acts 15, what you have is the beginning of a, of a movement that's no longer a Jewish sect, but now is a, is a movement encompassing Jews and Gentiles that moves beyond in a, in a fascinating sort of way. And that turn in Acts 15 happens because they, they gather together in light of trusting that God's Spirit is present with the Scriptures, and then they listen to one another's experiences. And out of that process, they come to a discernment about the next way forward and the next steps forward. Uh, and we talked about other sorts of examples of this in, in Scripture. Uh, and, and so... What I'm, I'm grateful to get to do with you all is kind of think through, I've been doing Christianity somewhat for, at least consciously, for over half a century now, and um, thinking, what are major turns I've learned, major things I've learned and unlearned and relearned, and in what way has my experience shaped, informed, contributed to such major turns of understanding as we've gone along. And so that's kind of what we're, what we're trying to do in here this, this, uh, this term. I want to talk, uh, this week I'm going to start kind of that will be at least a, a two-part um, element. Last week we talked about, I, I subtitled it in my notes at least, on certifiability. That is, we talked about the kind of the modernist assumptions that many of us grew up with in which, uh, to use the words of the preacher that I had as a boy, you've got to know you know, you know you know, you know you know it's right. And this sort of quest for certifiability. And the way that quest for certifiability in time did not serve me very well. And in actual, actual fact, it actually led me to the point of wondering whether or not I could possibly have a faith if that were the standard by which one had to claim to have faith. This week I want to turn to another sort of topic, and that is um, on grace. And this will be at least in two parts. Uh, it may, we may end up with more than that, but 
Uh, this is part one this week. So let me start first then. Uh, again, I'll, I'll try to keep going back to this three-part, this, this trifold structure. Faith, understanding, and seeking. Faith and understanding and seeking. So let me begin with the sort of nature of faith that was given me. And I know that some of you will resonate with some of this. I talked about some last week, the kind of nature of faith that was given me in my home church in which there was a very a tender, loving, affectionate sort of giving of faith. Uh, as, as I reminisced last week, among my, some of my earliest memories are the, the older ladies in my Sunday school class when I'm a four-year-old and when I'm a three-year-old and I'm a five-year-old and I'm a seven-year-old and the ways in which those women, uh, some of them old uh, w- widow women who had been laboring for a long time on their own in the faith, uh, cultivated love and cultivated the faith in us. And then I talked about the ways in which the preacher kind of changed some of that in certain ways. But I remember, for example, the way in which the preacher would often speak of Uzzah and the Ark of the Covenant in 2 Samuel 6. Now some of you know this story because you heard the preacher talk about it too, and some of you don't have the slightest idea of what I'm talking about. How many of you do know the story of Uzzah in 2 Samuel 6? Oh, most of you, yeah. You'll remember, of course, that Uzzah is the story in which Uzzah was one who was helping relocate the Ark back to Jerusalem after it had, had over time previously had been lost in a battle. And they're bringing it back, and rather than it being carried, it's on an ox cart, and they, they, the ox cart gets, uh, gets wobbly, and Uzzah reaches up to steady the Ark of the Covenant against the law and is struck dead by God. Our preacher liked that story, <laughs> and he liked to tell us that story, and he did on numerous occasions. The moral of the story, at least so far as the preacher told it, and I would suggest that um, if you're looking for another sort of moral of that story, go read John Mark Hicks' uh, commentary on these passages, uh, which is a very beautiful sort of telling. Even still, there's nothing you can get away from the fact that that's a difficult text, right? Uh, but there are different ways to tell a story, and John Mark tells it in a very helpful way, I think. Uh, but the way our preacher told the story, the moral of the story was very, very simple. There are simple rules. Keep the simple rules. If you don't keep the simple rules, you're screwed. Keep the rules. Any questions? <laughs> I, um, I think back to, to my baptism. I was, um, and I know some of you have heard me tell this story, uh, but I think back to my baptism. I was baptized, I, I think I was age 12, at, uh, at church camp. I loved our church camp. It was a wonderful, wonderful camp. I, I loved it from the first time I went uh, and all the way through, and I still look back in the ways in which people loved us at that church camp, and they were so good to us, and I loved it. The night of my baptism, we had a preacher that preached uh, a story about the devil. He was using the text about the devil's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, and uh, he told very vivid used very vivid pictures of the devil and the devil's ways. Um, I still envision the pictures I had in my own 12-year-old mind as he told these stories. And then he closed with the story about a teenager who had postponed his baptism. (laughs) And he had postponed his baptism, but he had finally decided to be baptized. And he was on the way to the church building and was killed in a car wreck. Terrible car wreck. Terrible car wreck. (laughs) 
And we were all left to the conclusion of what happened to that boy because he had postponed his baptism. I, along with 18 other weeping adolescents, was baptized <laughs> that night. Now, I do want to note very quickly that um, one of the things that, um, that, that one learns as one labors along with any given institution or any given community of people is that one can naively look at any community of people and look at one snapshot and think, well, that defines those people. And I would like to suggest that's a very unhelpful, judgmental way to go. Because I know, for example, that the next year, the camp director, um, whom I always respected and still respect, decided, okay, if, if, people, if, if the people we asked to speak are going to use this in a manipulative way, we will no longer have an invitation at church camp. So I don't tell that to kind of, in broad brush, say that's the way those people were, manipulating people theologically, emotionally. It's more complicated than that always. I think always. Maybe not always. But often. So I was baptized that night. Um, what I'm trying to get at is that there was a sort of... Um, my understanding at this time of what... Well, some would say, well, there's no understanding of grace in that. And I would say, no, there was an understanding of grace in that context. The understanding of grace was that it was a highly procedural, transactional notion of grace. There's a very high view of law and God's will, and that if one breaks God's will, one deserves death. One deserves punishment, if not death. But God is a God of grace, and thus God gives certain procedures, and if one rightfully follows the procedures and the rules, then one can get in the space of grace. If you're baptized in the right way, with the right understanding, you can get in the face of grace. If you uh, don't sin right before you die, and you pray to ask God to forgive you, then you can be in the place of grace. Which raises another sort of poignant memory of mine as a 16-year-old. I was, um, I was driving from Pell City, Alabama, back to Talladega, Alabama, my hometown, on Alabama State Highway 34. It was, as I recollect, it was about my, I, I, that night I was supposed to be home, I don't remember if it was at 9 or 10, but it's, it, it's like 5 or 7 minutes prior to that hour, the appointed hour of my curfew. And I didn't want to be late. And so I was driving a little fast down State Alabama Highway 34. It was a 55 mile an hour speed zone. And I looked down and saw that I was going 58 miles an hour. And the thought that went through my mind was, Lee, slow down. Three miles an hour is not worth an eternity in hell. Because if you have a wreck, and get killed before you can pray and go to hell forever, it's not worth it. Now you and I both know, most likely, that that is insane. <laughs> but I'm reporting to you my experience as a 16-year-old. And I don't tell it to make fun of it. I tell it to report on my experience. And I tell it to point to the ways in which it's important that we tell stories and talk about the nature of God and the character of God and what all this is about. 
But for me, grace was there, but it was highly procedural, highly technical, and highly bound by the power of the rules God has given. The legalisms, turning to a second subpoint, were often particularly deployed around matters of modesty and sexuality. Now, as a quick aside, I want to point this out. Um, years later, I had a, a friend of mine who was a, a preacher at a very large, very wealthy church. And he asked if we could go to coffee. And we went to coffee, and he said, he said, I'm struggling with a request that's been made of me. He said, the elders of our church have asked me to preach a sermon about modesty. And he said, they're concerned about the ways in which the women and the teenage girls are dressing. And they want me to preach a sermon about modesty. And we talked about it and discussed it. And then I said to my friend, well, it seems to me you have a problem. Because it seems to me that one could not possibly speak about modesty at your church with any integrity unless one also talks about modesty in the cars one buys and modesty in the houses one builds. And he said, well, I can't possibly do that. And I said, it seems you have a problem. <laughs> what we had in my context, in this sort of legalistic construal, was legalisms that were particularly concerned with bodily modesty and sex. We wouldn't wear shorts in public. We didn't do the dancing. I, um, and again, I know my friends, you've got to be tired of hearing some of these stories you've heard me tell, but, um, you know, the seventh grade PE class was the time that um, you learned square dancing. And as I recollect, one of the... Um, one of the discernment processes in our context was us to get together with the preacher and the youth group and to decide whether Lee would participate in square dancing in PE. And we decided that one way that I could bear witness to the gospel would be by not participating in square dancing. And so I took my note to the PE teacher and sat in the stands and watched my friends as they square danced. Or, sometimes it was a bit more difficult. I had a, a very good friend. She was a beautiful young woman. She's still a beautiful woman. Um, she was... She was going to be in a beauty contest. Uh, 
we went to church together. There was a uh, swimsuit competition at the beauty contest. And our, our church decided publicly to make an announcement that that was not acceptable. And of course it was the end of my friend and her family's participation in our church. Um, or there were other moments like um, the time I, as I recollect, I was, I don't know, 7th, 8th, ninth grade. We, uh, we would go to Youth in Action in Tuscaloosa, which was a wonderful gathering. It was always a great time. Very helpful. And we were pulling out of the parking lot with the preacher who was driving the van and um, stopped, on the, stopped just about to pull out of the street. And he looked up and saw a young man running down the sidewalk in jogging shorts and a van full of adolescents. Uh, the preacher said, he looks real nice in those shorts. He'll look real nice in hell. Now, I was good at all this. I was a perfectionist both academically and theologically. At the time, believe it or not, I was relatively well-adjusted, um, at least to be caring about such moralisms. I, was, I did well in school. I uh, was a student body president. I was able and even interested in keeping all the rules that the preacher taught us. And I was even interested in expositing them and pushing them on others. At the same time, I did carry about kind of always a sense of distance from others. There was a sort of distance that was facilitated by the fact that there could be no true common ground with my fellows, certainly not with the Catholics and Episcopalians, and not even with the Methodists, or the Baptists, or the Presbyterians either. There was a constant need to argue against or to seek to convert them. And yet, while I was relatively good at the legalistic game, I discovered that the rules were not always as simple as deciding to keep them. That is, I began to experience a certain level of powerlessness to keep certain rules. When I was younger, I, I guess I was probably 10, I had a, uh, I had a, what some these days would call a, a hashtag me too moment. I had a, uh, there was a boy that I was around a lot. He was older than me, not, not someone in my family, but I was around him often. And uh, on numerous occasions, he would expose himself to me, and he would ask me to perform oral sex on him. And I thank God I never did. I thank God I never touched him. Um, but that happened enough, conjoined with other times where he would, uh, when we were alone, he would uh, 
show me pornography when I didn't even yet understand what sex was about. And so when I think when one experiences such things and then one, one is taught as a boy to repress and that any sorts of things around sexuality, that even, even wearing shorts, even going to the square dance, and one begins to seek to repress what is normal adolescent sexual development, it messes with one's psyche. And I began to experience some of this sort of messing with my psyche when I was young. A turning point around this was um, as a senior in high school, we, um, the National Honor Society at my high school was invited to go do a domestic exchange trip to go to Wyandotte, Michigan. Wyandotte is, uh, is a working-class neighborhood of Detroit. Uh, it was fascinating as a southern boy. My, our high school in Talladega was roughly, uh, we, uh, it was all uh, African-American and Caucasian. It was about 50%, 50%. Uh, as I recollect, no, no Hispanics, no Asians. It was all just black and white, as we use those terms. Um, and so we went, up to, we went up to Michigan, to Detroit, and I was amazed to be in a working class neighborhood in Detroit, in Wyandotte High School, the big high school, thousands, three, four thousand students, and they had two people of color, one African American and one Native American. And I thought, hmm, what's this about? But that, I digress. Um, in in uh, Wyandotte, we, uh, I was the good kid from Talladega, Alabama. I didn't party, I didn't drink, I didn't dance, I didn't cuss. Some of you are surprised to hear, to hear that last thing. <laughs> I may actually do a whole class session on that very ironic observation. Um, I didn't drink, I didn't dance, I didn't cuss. And one night we went, all of us, the Honor Society kids from their high school and the Honor Society kids from our high school, went to a party. And it was a party like I'd never been to a party before. It was a real party. You know. There was there was there was pot smoking and alcohol drinking and um Guys and girls making out all over the place, and girls and girls making out with each other, and it was like, you know, I didn't know what to do with this. And so I look at some of my friends, and we say, they're pretty, they're they're pretty straight laced too, and um, they said, well, let's get out of here and go to a movie. Well, the problem with that was that um, the movie we chose to go to was an R-rated movie. And we don't go to R-rated movies, where I came from. And um, so my, my dear friend, Lucretia, another friend of mine from church and from high school, very fine human being, she, she was sitting beside me, and she had already seen Eddie Murphy's Beverly Hills Cop. <laughs> oh. And she patted me on the knee and she said, Lee, 
there's going to be a part of this you're not going to want to see. And she said, <laughs> and she said, she said, I'll let you know when you want to get up and go to the bathroom. <laughs> so when the when the strip club scene begins to come into the show, into the movie, she pats me and she says, now's the time. <laughs> and so I, I got up, went to the back of the theater, and stopped before I went out to the door to watch the scene, <laughs> went to the restroom and came back. And when I came back, she laughingly, good-naturedly said, I saw you stop back there. <laughs> Sweet little thing. Sweet little thing. <laughs> Poor thing. Yeah. So I, I went home, and I had a crisis of conscience. And so uh, the next Sunday, you know, as, as we would do, we, I went forward at church. And I told the whole story to the preacher. And uh, he told some of the outlines of the story to the congregation. And then they prayed for me. After church, there was a, there was a dear woman uh, named uh, Miss Daisy. She was um, in her 80s, uh, very small of stature, and very dear. And in the crush of people, after church was over, she, she came up and I was, you know, 6'1", and she was, I don't know, a little bitty. And she reached up, and she put her, I, and I reached down, and she put her palm on my cheek, and she patted me like that. And she said, you didn't do anything wrong. Years later, I would be uh, sitting in one of my professor's classes, my Greek professor, um, and he lectured that day on Romans and Galatians, and I was in the room with a, a bunch of Bible majors, and I sat there listening to this Greek professor lecture on Romans and Galatians and him exposit that we are saved by grace through faith. We are saved by grace through faith. And he was declaring it in such a way so that this grace was not a procedural transaction that one had to figure out how to do everything right so you could get into the place of grace. But that this was the the nature of God, this was the nature of our salvation, that this was the nature of what we profess and proclaim. And it was done, and I turned to my friend Ben May across the aisle, and I said, I don't think I need that. What happened in that context was a sort of adjustment, a major dislocation. The grace 
would no longer be able to be seen as a mere consequence of otherwise legalistic transactions. That the sorts of arbitrary capriciousness by which the preacher had set up certain rules through which one had to jump to get the grace. For example, I remember one time a sermon on it doesn't matter if God told you to jump over a fence to be saved. If God told you to jump over a fence to be saved, you jump over the fence. As if to say, this is the way God is. These things don't have to make sense, and they often don't make sense, but this is the rule, so keep the rule so you can have the grace. And this was a sort of major dislocation of that to say that's not the kind of God we serve, that this God is fundamentally, through and through, top to bottom, a God of grace, a God of forgiveness, a God of compassion. Because one could see this Peter going to Jesus and saying, how many times do you want me to forgive? Seven times? And this Jesus, whom we believe to be the son of this God, the Father, saying, no, Peter, not seven times, 70 times seven. That we could not outdo the grace of God, whose grace was overflowing and outpouring and abundant and plentiful. I had, in other, I had in other words, I would say become something like an American evangelical Christian. And for the time being, it was wonderful. End of part one. Thank you. Comments, questions, thoughts? William? I was going to say, I, I appreciate you being so uh, candid with this, this uh, moral, moralism and legalism. Uh, it's something I really struggle with. Like, uh, your, being, your willingness to be open to something one I held is amazing, man. Because, uh, and this is a two-part question. One, I noticed that um, <clears throat> on your Facebook page, um, you and Laura went to, uh, what, it, it's a cafe that they, that they play music. Did you, you know what I'm talking about? It's like, Blooper. A, where? Blooper. Yes, yes. And so one of the things that I have, um, when, I, when, I, when I saw that on your Facebook page, I was like, man, Lee would go to like places that are like secular because they serve alcohol there and this sort of thing. And, it's, and it, it's, it seems ridiculous to people in my life who are Church of Christ. Uh, but in my own life, like I still listen to hardcore gangster rap music. A lot of the, the music is very political, but a lot of it don't mean nothing. And <laughs> I still listen to it. Um, I've, I've turned a moral corner. I don't drink. Uh, I've never smoked. Uh, I date in a way that's very unpleasant now, and I'm trying to be very subtle. I, I date very much as a Christian man now. Uh, but I'm going to listen to my music, right? So how do you, considering your background, how do you reconcile that um, as a Christian and as an elder going to places like that because it was always bad? And then secondly, and this is, I'm not trying to be funny when I say this, the square dancing that you're talking about is just the kind of stuff that they did on Andy Griffith, that kind of thing. And it, 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 it's that kind of square dancing. Is that viewed in some of these white rural communities as Christian or sinful? Because I can't, I can't imagine that being, it looks more ridiculous than it does. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <sexual. laughs>
This is Yeah, the square dancing is very square, yes. Um, yeah, I, I can't speak for other people's, I just share my experience on that. I, I don't know how other people process square dancing. Uh, did anybody else experience square dancing in that way? Oh, okay, so that was not an uncommon sort of experience then, of, that I had. Fascinating. Lee, when I went to ACU, I had graduated from the first weekend, there was a sponsored square dance by the college. I have a lot. <laughs> yeah, fascinating. Yeah. yeah. On on your on your first question, William, um, I'll later on talk about um, my development of my understanding of um, virtue traditions, and I'll, I'll I'll talk about that at length. About you know how how does one think of morality when it's not in service to moralisms and legalisms. Um, and uh, I think maybe a, maybe a definition of a legalism might be helpful, that at least the way I define legalism is, is, is it, it's a focus upon law for the sake of the law, as opposed to thinking about a law for the sake of the end, or a law for the sake of the purpose. Similarly with moralisms. Moralism is a, is a focus upon the moral for the sake of the moral, not a moral morality for the sake of the kind of people we are trying to become. And those are two very different ways, I think, of thinking about law and morality. And again, we'll talk more about that later on. Great question. Uh, so, I can relate in a lot of ways. Uh, what I can't relate to quite as much is is the, uh, and thankfully, is the whole, you know, hill of good and hell, or the really dogmatic. I, I, I guess I'm fortunate not to have experienced that. But what I did, I, I feel like I was almost said immersed in, in poor choice of words, mm -hmm. uh, was the transactional and procedural uh, notion of grace. And uh, so even, even without the highly dogmatic and rather offensive assertions like you look good in hell, uh, I, that, that seems to haunt me in a lot of ways that uh, that I consistently have trouble overcoming. Are you going to talk more about the whole procedural transactional grace notion? Because I think I've been contaminated by it uh, almost irreparably. Um, anybody got similar sorts of comments or thoughts or but that stuff bleeds over into your relationships too, man. Right? Yeah, yeah. You, 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 you. It, it's, it's, it's in your family, in your dating life, and probably in your marriages. When you have transactional ideas about God, everything is transactional. Yeah. So it's very bad. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. I think it is very dangerous. I I think that um, one of the things that I and I'll talk again. I will talk more about this later. I mean, I think that intellectually what happened with me was that I, I was grateful to start learning as an undergraduate college student intellectually why some of these theological notions did not work. I saw why they didn't work biblically um, and how they fell apart oftentimes because they were in, inconsistent. And, um, and so intellectually I started working hard on this stuff in my early 20s. But I will say that um, 
the I think the emotional impact of that. Uh, I don't know that I made I made some emotional breakthroughs in my 30s, but I don't think I was really I, I was I was even surprised this morning that I got emotional talking about some of this stuff uh, because I didn't when I was working on my outline this morning I thought I would not be emotional at all, and. Um, but I know that it was not until um, I went through a midlife crisis and, and a lot of depression that I really saw how deeply the shame aspects of it were still in me. And I was really surprised when that, when I, when that came out so hard in my late 40s. Uh, and so I do think it just takes, for me, I'll just speak for myself, you know, for me it has taken a long, long time to process this stuff and to learn how to look at it differently and frame it. Differently. Yeah, and, and I think the uh, yeah I went to the dances. Uh, now, not everybody was so. So, in other words, I, I didn't I didn't hear the the I don't know rugged dogmatism, but I got the transactional procedural uh, driven into me, and, and I think I think that has been problematic even absent the some of the more yeah. uh, overboard things you yeah. described. I will I will say I, I think the major things that have helped me um, move beyond some of that is um, the experience of marriage and friendship uh-huh. and that what, what I've experienced in marriage and friendship are forms of, of grace that transcend that and that when one tangibly experiences grace that is very different than theorizing about it and but if one is always behind a space of fear then it's hard to make oneself vulnerable enough so that you ever get to have the experience of such grace and thus you can't ever get beyond it and so it's a terrifying sort of adjustment I think in that one first has to be vulnerable which is scary because not all people are gracious and not all people are trustworthy. But when one is vulnerable and then one finds on the other side of that vulnerability people who are gracious in profound ways, it, it, it can, I think, emotionally dislocate the old patterns of thinking about what is possible. I think for me, it was a setup to where I had to have it all together and I couldn't let them see that I didn't have it all together. But none of us have it together, so nobody talked about it. And so relationally, uh, we all want to be seen, we all want to be known. So I would go hang out with people that shared that way, rather than all the people that, I mean, I, I didn't see my parents show me that they weren't perfect. And that really hurt me. Um, so I think that more, was an impact of it than, you know, you can't dance, you can't swim, you can't do all this, but that I had to have it together and it wasn't okay not to. Yeah, that's that's very helpful. Um, and I'll, I'll close with this. That, that reminds me of a time Laura and I were in, in some, uh, uh, Laura and I have been big fans of, of, of intermittent marital counseling. We've done it, I don't know, three or four times. It's always helpful at various points. And in one season of that, when we were dealing with uh, some child-raising issues in one session, I remember um, we were talking about, I think, 
probably my perfectionism vis-a-vis -vis child raising, and uh, the counselor said, uh, she said, I, I would suggest to you that if you can get it right, get it right 80 or 85 percent of the time, then that's great and that's good enough. And she said, because what will happen is that uh, the, the 15 or 20 percent of the time you get it wrong allows you, one, to learn how to apologize to your kids and teach them how to apologize thereby, and two, it teaches them that they don't have to be perfect. And that was like ding, 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 ding moment for me. It's like, you know, this, this whole notion of having to be perfect, how damaging it can be. Um, but again, unless we have a different notion of grace, I don't know that we can get there. Thank you all very much. Have a great week. Yes.